Okay. Funny thing is, um, my best friend in high school was Brad. Everybody always got us confused, so I go by Brad, Chad, whatever. Um, so I'm going to try real hard also to stay here and stay in the view of the camera. So if you're watching this from home, I may be over here, but I, I walk around a lot. Um, so glad to be here this evening to share God's Word with you this evening. Um, I love to preach, and one of the things I found, I love doing pulpit supply because I get to do one of the things I love. I get to preach, and I don't have to do all the other church stuff, so um, this, is, this is fun for me. Uh, those of you that don't know, my name is Chad Carty. Um, we've been coming for a while. Um, see, maybe a few new faces that I don't maybe know, but um, my wife, Crystal. Crystal's a pharmacist in Rochelle, so if you've been in the hospital in Rochelle in the last five years, um, she's probably been the one responsible that you get the right medication. Um, we have four kids, Adeline, Elena, Tucker, and Reza, and if you've been here, you've seen them running around crazy after church. I apologize for that, but it is what it is. Um, so I'm currently the assistant principal at Freeport Junior High, Freeport Middle School. Um, this is my second year back in public education. I've been out of public education for about 20 years. Um, I left public education when I surrendered to the ministry. When I left, I didn't think I'd ever be back, um, but you never know what God has planned for you. And so now I'm back in uh, a public junior high, um, and I love it. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's a huge mission field, um, and I know God has me there for a reason. So that's a little bit about me, enough about me. I want to start tonight with a little bit of an illustration for us, and I'm going to challenge you to do something maybe a little different. I want us to take just a moment to focus on God. We're going to meditate for just a minute. Now, don't get all weird on me, and I know we hear the word meditate, and we immediately think of, you know, Buddhist monks with their legs crossed. And go, mm. No, we're not going to do that. What I want you to do is I'm going to actually set a timer for one minute, okay? I'm going to set a timer for one minute, and I want you to just focus on Jesus for a minute. Don't talk to him. Don't pray. I know, I just said don't pray, but don't pray. Don't ask him questions almost like you're in an art gallery and you're looking at a piece of art. I want you to just spend one minute, maybe find an, an, an image of God or an attribute or maybe the cross or something like that, but we're going to spend one minute, we're going to meditate on Jesus. All right, ready? Here we go. Okay, go ahead and stop. How many of you was that a little bit difficult? Did anybody find their minds wandering off or I had a fly flying over here on my head? And Why is it difficult to take one minute to focus on Jesus? It seemed like a lot longer than a minute for me. I don't know about you. 
You know, I've been trying really hard the last few weeks to do just that, to stop and focus on Jesus, to really just meditate, to think, to, to ponder, to not always talk to Him, not always ask things, not always expect things in return, but just sit in His glory, to, to meditate on Him. Psalm 145 verse 5 says, Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works, I will meditate. We're going to be talking tonight about Jesus, and we're going to be talking about some amazing things about Him. And, and as I, I preach, I'm actually going to be telling you some things that you can actually ponder on. Um, some things that maybe this week you could think, I can stop and I can think about that. I'm going to be preaching tonight, and then I'll be here next week again. Um, this week we're going to be talking about Jesus, and next week we're going to talk about how we respond to Jesus. Tonight we're going to be looking at some amazing attributes of Him, and then next week we're going to say, okay, this is kind of a little spoiler alert, if Jesus is really that awesome, what are we going to do about it? Because if we claim to be Christ's followers, we have an obligation and a, and a response to that. So tonight we're going to spend time just talking about Jesus, um, and then next week we're going to do the, kind of the application. So it's a two-part sermon, um, so hopefully you'll come back and get the second part, but if not, I completely understand. So tonight our question is, what makes Jesus so unique? What makes him so unique? And then again, next week, we're gonna, how do we respond to that? And tonight we're actually going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, a few of you still have Bibles, um, turn to Isaiah. If you don't know where that's at, really easy to find. Go to the middle of your Bible, find the book of Psalm. Keep going to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. If you're like most of us, you just pull it up on the Bible app and type it in, right? Now, if you've been in church very long, you've heard this passage probably preached a number of times. This is the call of Isaiah. Um, a lot of times we, we focus on Isaiah, we focus on him being called, um, being sent. If you've been in a church very long, if you've been to a commissioning service for missionaries, this is the, the passage we typically use when we commission missionaries. We talk about it when we, we talk about going out and, and sharing the gospel. But tonight I want us to look at this a little different. We're not going to focus as much on Isaiah as we are on God himself. This passage says a whole lot about God, but what's really unique about this is this passage talks about Jesus. And there's a little piece in this that's hidden that I think is just really cool, and we're going to share about that in a little bit. So Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and, one had, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And to one another they called, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of his voice, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with the tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, 
Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the, Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the time to gather here. God, we recognize that around this world, this weekend people are going to gather in secret rooms, in closets, in basements because they don't have the freedom to go to church and be open about it. God, we thank you for the freedom we have to be able to worship you, to be able to talk about you. Lord, this evening as we look at this passage, I pray that you would change us, that we would see you in a different way. And God, my prayer this evening is that we would have an encounter with you the true living God, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, our Savior. And God, that as we have an encounter with you, that we would leave here tonight different, and we would leave here excited, and we would leave here ready to tell people about you. So Lord, I pray this evening as I speak that these not be my words, but they would be yours. God, use me as an instrument for you. God, we're trusting that you're going to do something amazing tonight in a in this, this place, in this time. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So just a little background before we dig into this passage. Uh, this is obviously written by Isaiah. We don't really know a whole lot about Isaiah. Um, we know that he was probably from royalty of some sort, would have had some social status at his time. Obviously, he's a Jewish man, most likely a devout man of God. God called him to be a prophet, um, one of the great prophets. That's really all we know about Isaiah. Just a little bit about the book. Um, it says in the, the first verse there, in the year that K King Uzziah died, just a little information about King Uzziah. Um, he was actually one of the, the better kings of Israel. Uh, up until right before he, he died, he, he thought he could be a priest and he went to the temple and God gave him leprosy and he died. But up until then, he was a pretty good guy. And actually, um, Judah was doing pretty well. Jerusalem itself was, was prospering. Um, it was a good economic time. They had lots of freedom. It was, it was a good time for them. Um, so as Isaiah's coming in, it's really at a good spot, one of the higher notes um, for Israel. Now, I do want to tell you this as we dig into this. Um, just so you know where I come from, I believe that this physically took place. I believe that Isaiah was transported and was in the temple in heaven. Some commentators, some people will say that this was just a vision. I really don't know that it matters. What matters is that Isaiah did have an encounter with God. I believe it was a physical, real encounter, and I'm going to tell you a little more about that, why I think that's important. But Isaiah had an encounter with God, and it changed him and caused him to do something, go out and tell people, again, that's next week. Now, one last thing I want to tell you before we get into the meat of this. This passage, although it's in Isaiah, although it was written 700 years before Jesus, is about Jesus. There's a technical term for that. It's called a Christophany. Anytime we see Jesus um, outside of the Gospels, mostly in the Old Testament, that's called a Christophany. Let me get a little technical with you. Um, look at verse number three real quick. 
Look at verse number three and look at the word Lord in verse number three. What do you notice about the word Lord in verse number three? So I'm a teacher by trade, remember, so I expect you, know, you to respond. It's all capital letters, right? And it may be a really big L and then a smaller O-R-D, but they're all capital, right? Well, just so you know, if you don't know, that, that means that's, that's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, or the, the formal name for God. And what that harkens back to is the, the word or the I am. The Hebrew readers, when they would have seen that, would have thought back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is standing before the burning bush and he said, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am, or just I am, the word, right? You might remember that story. So that's where Yahweh comes from, and that's actually a transliteration, yod Hey, vav Hey, which are Hebrew letters. But what's interesting is, remember, God said, I am. And then if we go into the New Testament, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Do you know what that Word is? Yahweh, I am. So when we see that Lord in all capital letters, we can know that that is Jesus. And in a case like this, this is the physical appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I know that's really technical, so if you want a, a different way to look at this, we could go to John 12, 41. Listen to what John says. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So we can talk about the technical language part, or we can just go to the New Testament and see John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. So as we go through this, I'm going to say Jesus, I'm going to say God, but know that Isaiah had an encounter with Jesus. Although it's 700 years before Jesus walked on earth, this is Jesus. So as we walk through this passage, remember that Isaiah encountered the full, true being of Jesus. Today we're not looking at just Jesus as the man or a savior, but we're going to see that he's the king of kings. We're going to see he is the holiest of holies. We are going to see that he is the most glorious God. So let's jump into this. Let's walk through this and see what we can learn about Jesus. The first thing that Isaiah experienced was Jesus and his majesty. Now when you hear the word majesty, what do you think of? A king, right? Maybe you've heard your majesty, right? Majesty is a word for a king. And again, we live in a democratic society, so we don't always understand this whole king and royalty type thing. But Isaiah saw his majesty. Look at verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and lofty on a throne. His robe filled the temple. What did Isaiah see? A throne. Who sits on a throne? A king, right? Thank you. And talk loud. It's really, it, all these fans, it's hard to hear. A king sits on a throne. His majesty. Wasn't too long ago we actually got a, a unique chance in history. We saw um, Prince Charles become king, right? We saw that he was seated on a throne and they put the crown on his head and all this pomp and circumstance. Well, when you see a throne, you know that that person is in charge. Now, Isaiah doesn't just see a throne. He sees Jesus on the throne. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. So this signifies the authority that Jesus has. Not just a little bit of authority, but all authority. Everything 
living and non-living is under the authority of Jesus. Jesus said that himself, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Philippians 2 tells us that at the mere mention of the name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That Lord means ruler. Jesus is in charge. Why is every knee going to bow? Because he is the king of kings. He is the ruler. He is the authority. Now, not only does Isaiah see him sitting on a throne, but what do you notice about that throne? It's high and lofty. Not just high, but this means that this throne is above all thrones. The throne that Jesus is on is above all thrones. Now again, we miss a little bit because we live in a democratic society. We don't have monarchs. We don't have kings and queens. But depending on your rank in a monarchy, the higher you sit, the more authority you have. And who sits on the highest spot? The king. Typically, a throne is on some sort of pedestal so that it's even higher than, than everybody else, right? Closest thing I can think of is, is our American flag. If the American flag is flown next to other flags, the American flag always has to be higher, right? Symbolizing the authority that the federal government has over everything else. Where's the throne at that Jesus is on? It's highest above all. God sits above all thrones. Not that he's just high, it is above all. Talks about his majesty. But here's another unique thing about this. I saw the Lord seated high and lofty on his throne. His robe filled the temple. Now where is this throne at? It's in the temple. Typically, where do we see a throne at? Thrones are typically in a castle or a palace. It's because those are for kings. Jesus sits on a throne that's in the temple. Kings live in castles. Who lives in temples? God lives in the temple. So this is a throne that is not only seated above above all other thrones, it is seated in the temple, meaning this is the house of God. Literally, above all, seated on a throne in the temple, the house of God. Means that Jesus is not only king, but he is God himself. Now, we're still talking about his majesty, how great he is. I saw the Lord seated high and lofty, and his robe filled the temple. Kind of seems odd, right? What does his robe have to do with anything? And Again, this is one of those things we, we miss because we don't live in this day and time, but in this time, the more power and authority and prestige you had, the longer your robe was. Closest thing I can relate this to now would be like if you would, were working for a big company in a city. The higher you get in a company, where's your office at? Higher up in the building, right? The top exec has the best office at the top floor with the best view, Right? You know you've made it if you've got the top corner office. In this day, it was how long your robe was. And it says that Jesus' robe filled the temple. And some of your translations might even say the hem of his robe. Here's the thing. Not only did Jesus' robe, it was just the end of his robe that filled the temple. The very hem filled the temple. 
One commentator I read said, Yahweh is so great that the earthly manifestation of his presence is only the outermost fringe of his garment. God's majesty is so great that we can only comprehend a small portion of it. There's something you can ponder and meditate on. God's majesty is so great we can only comprehend a small part. So the first thing Isaiah encounters is Jesus' immeasurable majesty. Second, Isaiah encounters Jesus' unmatched holiness. Look at verse number two. Seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one another they called, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. Now, Isaiah describes these seraphim. This is the only mention of them in the Bible. We really don't know a whole lot about them, but they're some sort of angel, meaning they're a created being, created for a purpose, created by God for his service. Now, going back to what we know about monarchies, these had to have been the highest rank because they're right there at the throne. Kind of like the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in the United States. The top leaders of the military, next in line under the president. The president is the next person above them, right, with ultimate authority. So these seraphim obviously are the highest rank because they're right there around the throne. In Hebrew, the word seraphim means flying serpent. Now, they had to have some type of man-like features because they have feet and they have eyes, but they also had wings. They could communicate. But let me tell you, these are not the cute little cuddly angels that we think of when we think of angels. I'll just side note, what we think of as angels is really not biblical at all, okay? The Bible really doesn't talk about people in white and harps and cute little cuddly people, okay? These were probably almost monstrous looking to us, fearful. These are warriors. These are the top warriors. One commentator speculated that Satan himself might have been a seraphim, which actually makes a lot of sense. But what we know is because of where they're at, they had to have some authority. These are high-ranking monstrous warriors. But look at what they do. It says, they covered their face and they covered their feet. God is so holy that these perfect, high-ranking angels covered their face and their feet in humbleness in front of Jesus. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody where you just didn't feel worthy to be there? I don't know if you've ever been in front of a celebrity, or or maybe this way, you know, if you were invited to the White House, you wouldn't go to the White House and flop down on the couch and prop your feet up on the coffee table in the Oval Office and say, hey, how's it going, right? There's an amount of decorum. If you were to meet the King of England, they would actually prep you on what you were to say and how you were to stand and all the things you're supposed to do because there's an amount of decorum required. That's what's going on here. 
Jesus is so holy that these top-ranking angel warriors are covering their face in humbleness before him. That's the amount of respect that Jesus deserves. But not only that, look at what they say. And they call to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Something really, really important here. They're not telling us, or they're telling us who God is. They're not telling us what he does. They're not telling us what he looks like. They're telling us who he is. And who is he? He is holy. Holy is really easy to, to, to translate. It just means set apart. Jesus is set apart. Set apart from everything else. That's why the angels are covering their faces because Jesus is so set apart. He's so perfect they can't even look at him. There's something to meditate on this week. Now, not only do they call him holy, they say, holy, holy, holy. Three times. Now, in, in Hebrew writing, typically if something was really important, they would repeat it twice. Kind of like we would put an exclamation point. Now, if you know anything about formal writing, you don't ever put more than one exclamation mark, right? A lot of times when we text, we put exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. But formal writing, you only put one. Hebrew people would have only said a word twice. But these angels said holy how many times? Three times. That's how holy Jesus is. There's something to meditate on. These angels who are probably second in command, mighty warriors, and in the presence of Jesus, all they can say as they're covering their faces, holy, holy, holy. And not only that, verse number four, it says, the foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. The temple was filled with smoke. As they said, holy, 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 the earth shook. Not only are these angels worshiping, the earth itself is worshiping God. That is how holy Jesus is. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 1940. He answered the Pharisees and he said, I tell you that if they are silent, the stones will cry out. God is so holy that even the non-living things are going to worship Him. There's something to meditate on. So first we see Jesus' immeasurable majesty. We see His unmatched holiness. And the third thing we see here is His all-consuming glory. Back at 3 and 4. They called one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of his voice, and the temple was filled with smoke. It says his glory fills the whole earth. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to define glory, and glory is a really hard word to define. Here's some things I found. Um, praise, honor, distinction, a distinguished quality or asset, Great beauty or splendor, I don't know if those really tell us what it means. One commentator said that it's a technical term for God's 
manifest presence with his covenant people. Probably the one I like the most, and this is really wordy, but John Piper says, this is what he says, my best effort to define glory is the public radiance of the infinite beauty and worth of God. All the things of God that make him excellent and beautiful and desirable and supremely valuable. I probably should have sent that beforehand so you could see it up there. It's a lot of words. It's hard to define what glory is. But what's interesting, the, the Hebrew word glory has a meaning of heaviness. I think glory is something physical. It's something that can be experienced. It can be felt because look what it says. His glory fills the whole earth. So if it fills the earth, it's something, right? It's something tangible. And glory is represented here in verse number 4 by smoke. The temple was filled with smoke. Now, if you know much about the Bible, many times God is represented as smoke or fire. Go back to the Exodus. God manifests himself at a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke, right? By day and by night. Exodus 40, 34, and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, it was covered in smoke, the glory of God. In the Bible, smoke represents the glory of God. So I think one way to help us understand is to think about glory like smoke. Think about smoke for a little bit. We know when we're around smoke, right? You can smell it. You can taste it. At times you can almost feel it, right? But think about smoke, though. It, it surrounds you. It, it gets in you. If you breathe enough smoke, you're going to start coughing, right? And it stays with you. If you've sat by a campfire for very long and you go home, what do you smell? You smell the smoke. Think about glory like that. Glory, God's glory is something that sticks with us. It fills us. It surrounds us. It stays with us. It's the physical attribute of God that fills the earth. <laughs> That's my best effort. I can't explain really what glory is, but I can tell you this. I can feel the presence of God. I know for a fact that Jesus lives in me. I can't explain it. But I can feel it and I can tell you about that. The glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. Isaiah felt the glory of God. So we've seen Jesus' immeasurable majesty. We've seen his unmatched holiness. We've seen his all-consuming glory. And then the fourth thing, Isaiah is confronted with Jesus' perfection. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus as a friend, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Great song, what a friend we have in Jesus. But Jesus is so much more than a friend. The cross is actually what allows us to have him as a friend, right? The cross is what broke the barrier between us and a perfect God. That's what happened when, when the temple and the curtain split from top to bottom as Jesus died. That was symbolic of the barrier that used to between, be between God and his people is broke. So we have a relationship with God. But we've got to remember that although we are a friend of Jesus, we are never equal with him. That's what Isaiah is confronted with here. Look at verse number 5. Isaiah says, Then I said, 
Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does he say? Isaiah sees Jesus himself and he says, Woe is me. Being in the presence of God brought sorrow on Isaiah. Now wouldn't you think if you're standing in front of Jesus, you'd be excited? Isaiah says, woe is me. It's a legal term that means he should die. I'm ruined. I'm dead. The sight of Jesus made him say, I am dead. Now remember, Isaiah is not some run-of-the-mill criminal or sinner. This is probably a really holy guy. God chose him to be one of the great prophets. And yet he says, woe is me. Isaiah immediately saw how sinful he was. Later on, Isaiah is talking to the people and he says in, in Isaiah 59 two, but your iniquities are separating you from God and your sins have hidden your face from you that he does not listen. We got to remember and never forget how sinful we are and how perfect Jesus is. If you want something to meditate on, think about that. How sinful we are, how perfect He is, and we're going to get to this here in just a little bit, but He still loves us in spite of the fact that we are so sinful and He is so perfect. There's something to meditate on. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, remember, if we know anything about Jewish culture, this kind of refer refers back to the purity laws. Um, but think about your lips for a minute. Why lips? Everything that comes in and out of our body, not everything, but comes in and out of our lips, right? We take things in, we send things out. We, we take words in and we send words out. You know, I think about, I think about food. Um, if I'm being honest, I've put way too much weight on this past year. Um, sitting at a desk will do that to you. But I know that I can control that with my lips, right? If I stop putting this stuff in my mouth, I'll lose some of this. But that's where my problem is. Isaiah said he's a man of unclean lips, meaning that he's taken things in. It's not just his mouth, but he's let things in. The things he's seen, the things he's thought. We're just like Him. We're sinful. And our sin separates us from God. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah sees the separation between him and the Lord. God is so perfect. And Isaiah immediately sees that and he says, Woe is me. And he sees that he is not an equal with this God that he's confronted with. So we've seen how majestic Jesus is. We've seen how holy he is. We've seen how glorious he is. We've seen how perfect he is. And the last thing Isaiah experiences was Jesus' love for him. Here's what I love about this passage. This passage is the gospel. 
It doesn't end with Isaiah saying, woe is me, I'm ruined. No, that's just the beginning. You see, Isaiah has an encounter with God. Isaiah admits that he is sinful and deserves to die, and then God takes away his sin, and then Isaiah later on goes out and tells other people about it. That is the gospel. He recognized he was in the presence of God. He recognized he was a sinner, and God forgave him of his sins. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hands was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, and your sins are atoned for. the gospel. (laughs) Isaiah admits, woe is me, I'm a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. But look at what is said here. It says, your iniquity has been removed, or your wickedness is removed, your sin is atoned for. I like the way the ESV says it. The ESV says your guilt is taken away. You see, Isaiah's guilt is what made him want to die. He knew that he was sinful, and that that guilt is what made him want to die, knowing that he had done wrong. He knew that he was sinful, and he was in the presence of God, and he deserved to die. That's the guilt, the guilt that we've all felt, right? Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Listen, once we accept Christ's forgiveness, it's as if the sin has never happened. But we can't erase history, right? The sin happened, but what God takes away is the guilt. The guilt that eats at us, that gnaws at us, that is what is taken away. Meditate on that for a little bit. <laughs> but you know what the most fascinating part, and I think it's something that we is really easily missed in this passage. It says, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. You know what that means? It means the price for your sin has been paid. Folks, this is Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. This just fascinates me. We hear the word atonement. This is a word we typically talk about in the New Testament. Jesus said, your sins have been paid for. This blows my mind. This passage points to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. We deserve to die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A death we deserve for our sin. But Jesus took that. Jesus tells Isaiah, your sin is paid for. Jesus hasn't went to the cross at this point, but they're already paid for. That's what Jesus did. He died for us. Jesus said to Isaiah, you don't have to die. The price has been paid. Your sins are atoned for. That's the gospel. This is what we need to ponder. Jesus 
is king, king of kings. He's seated, up, seated above all other kings. He is holy. He is glorious. He is perfect. We are not. But yet, he chose to die for us, to pay the price for that sin so that we didn't have to experience that death. That's what we need to ponder on. So I want to encourage you this week to spend some time in the presence of Jesus. Think about how majestic He is. Think about how holy He is. Think about His glory that fills the whole earth. Think about how much He loves you. Think about what He has given to you. And then when you're done thinking about that, go tell somebody else. That's next week. Be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that we know we can open and read and know that it is true. God, I thank you for your son Jesus who died for me. who, although you are holy and perfect, you chose to love me and love me so much that you would die for me on the cross. God, I don't understand, but I thank you. Lord, I pray that we would remember who you are, what you have done, what you're continuing to do. God, I pray that you would renew in us that feeling of the first time we met you. God, revive our hearts. God, reignite the fire in us that we would once again fall in love with you. And more than anything, God, that we would tell others about you. Lord, thank you for what you're continuing to do. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. I think we're going to sing one more song.